I'm sorry you got stuck with me. Brother DeGarmo is TDY, so he says. I believe he's at the Senior NCO Academy in uh, Maxwell. We're going to be in Haggai this morning if you want to start trying to find that. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and then somewhere down the road is Haggai. And I just want to say how much I appreciate the last two men who have taught adult Sunday school. Um, It literally saves me hours per week, and uh, I really do appreciate them studying and teaching God's Word, and some are probably thinking, well, what's the big deal? Well, I'm glad you asked. Um, So, just so you know how to pray for your pastor and and those who teach and preach in our church. Um, So, in a typical week, I'll preach Sunday morning, uh, Sunday night, Wednesday night, and that typically averages about 110 minutes of preaching and um, just on average, but a good, good rule of thumb for me, everybody's different, but a good rule of thumb for me is for every five minutes that I speak, it takes about an hour of study, just to kind of give you a, a reference there. Um, so therefore, when I'm not doing Sunday school or chapel, it's a minimum of 22 hours just in study, and that can greatly increase or decrease depending on the difficulty of the passage. Like this morning's passage, I really had to, uh, st- not Haggai, but um, in John, and it just took me a lot of time, and I still don't have peace about it, but we'll deal with that in the morning service. Um, and then, you know, how quickly the Lord gives direction or peace on what needs to be said, and how many texts I might receive, uh, how many emails that come in. And when that happens, it just kind of breaks your thought, right? You know what I'm talking about? You get in a project, and then your thought gets broken, and then you got to kind of get refocused, get back in gear, get back in the groove, if you will. And if you start to think about chapel, it typically adds another five to six hours of study. Now, last year, I just abused Larry, and I think he probably taught, you know, 66% of the chapel last year. I'm going to try to do better, brother. I, I promise I'm going to try to do better, and um, I'm praying about what to do in that. But um, anyway, Sunday school is like nine to ten hours of, of I mean, it's just ridiculous because we start, whatever reason, we start at 945. I don't know what, what independent Baptist thought that was a good idea. But uh, as soon as the church is willing, we're moving that thing to 10 because I just don't like it. But anyway, um, so we're talking, you know, anywhere from 22 to 38 hours a week uh, just in study. And um, what's that? <laughs> Didn't even cross my mind. Um, not to mention the John and Romans that have been printed. Well, all right, we're leaving it at 945. Um, Maybe we can just start getting done at 930. Amen. Uh, Oh, anyway. um, So, anyway, it's just a lot is what I'm saying. So, by the time you study, you preach, you're up over 40 hours a week just doing that. And uh, and it's it's just, anyway. Um, You throw in counseling sessions, phone calls, texts, emails, emergencies, church administration, financial oversight, calendar planning, school administration, press administration, oversight of the ministries, hospital visits, deacons meetings, miscellaneous functions. And I'm assuming you want me to spend time in prayer. <laughs> Amen. Acts 6-4, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. 
And not to mention what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty eight. Beside those things that are without, that which cometh upon me daily, the care of all the churches. And don't even get me started with problems that arise, right? Um, that takes a lot of time. And, and somewhere in all of that, I wouldn't mind to be a husband to my wife and a father to my kids. And, and so some of you are wondering, why are you telling me all this? Well, believe it or not, I've been criticized for not teaching Sunday school. <laughs> no. Who said I was kidding? Oh, no. No. Some of them may be in here right now. <laughs> um, two, I really appreciate Brother DeGarmo. It's been a huge help. Three, I really want to add a church staff member at some point. It'd be a huge help. And then uh, four, just in case anybody thinks I work two days a week and fish five. Amen. <laughs> um, that'd be nice. Now, with all that being said, please don't take it that I don't want to hear from you. I know somebody's going to walk out of here and go, well, I can't call them now. Um, no, call me. Um, I do want to hear from you. You're not wasting my time, and uh, that's why I'm here. And believe it or not, outside of family and salvation, um, this is the joy of my life. I, I love what I do. Um, it's, you know, is there times that I, I want to run my head through the wall? Yeah, but uh, it's fun. I really enjoy it. And um, the only time I would probably say show a little bit of discretion if you just wanted to help me out is Sunday nights or Saturday nights and Sunday mornings because that's when I'm trying to get zoned in. And You know what I'm saying? Um, now, if somebody's toe falls off, then you call me. And unless it's the pinky toe, we're not we're not worried about that. That's not an emergency, amen. We'll just so anyway. What's that? If Georgia loses, well, then Sunday's going to be ruined anyway. So don't don't even worry about that. All right, well, let's get started. Um, sorry for the detour there, but for those who remember the days before Stephen Dawson and Justin DeGarmo, um, <laughs> I taught this class, and we were going through what many call the minor prophets. That's the section of your Bible where the pages are still nice and clean and, and the golden edges are still not worn. There's no notes uh, in that section. And, and when, you, when you open to that section of your Bible, you can hear the binding, you know, under the pain of being open. I chose that series because it's not often that you hear verse by verse teaching on those books. Yeah, and when I was teaching, we made it through Hosea and Joel. The next book in that series would have been Amos, but that would take us well over a year, if not two years, to get through based on how long it took to get through Hosea. And so uh, we're not going to tackle Amos in a few weeks. Um, he, Brother DeGarmo won't be gone that long, thank God. But I do want to use my time in Sunday school to continue studying those last 12 books of the Old Testament so for now, we're going to bypass Amos, and uh, we'll consider the, the book of Haggai. And, and I've tried to figure out how to pronounce that. I, I used to say Haggai. Anyway, I listened to Alexander Scorby. He's kind of my authority on pronunciation. And uh, he just said Haggai, and I said, well, that's good enough for me. So um, we'll, call, we'll call it Haggai, and if you pronounce it differently, that's fine. But it's only a total of 38 verses contained in two chapters. But like every book in God's Word, it has something for us. Isn't that right? God's Word is timeless. Um, so even though this is centuries ago, it's going to speak to us. Um, 
by way of introduction, I mentioned a few years ago how I don't particularly like the term minor prophets. It's really a misconception when you describe uh, that section of your Bible. When, when people use the term uh, minor prophets, it's just simply describing the length of those books. Um, but the term somehow seems to insinuate that maybe they're not as important because they're minor. Amen. Uh, minors drive, you know, cars with learning permits. And, and it's like, well, no, that's not as cool as having your own license. So uh, anyway, why that made sense to me, I don't know, but that's how I was thinking about it just now. And so, but it seems, it seems to say that those prophets were less impactful when they were giving their prophecy, because we call them minor prophets and not major prophets, um, when really that's not the case. They're just as important. They're just as impactful. And uh, just because the size of a book is not as large as Isaiah, Jeremiah, or Ezekiel doesn't mean it doesn't have a major message. Um, what's interesting is when you talk about the major prophets, most people throw Lamentations and Daniel in there, and yet they're smaller than some of the minor prophets. So go figure. I don't know what to think of all that, but when you study the Old Testament, it's important to remember that the books are not all placed in chronological order. And so it's important that as we go through the Old Testament, we understand that, but that we also know there is a logical arrangement to how the Bible was canonized, and there is a a method to the madness, if you will. And so uh, very simply stated here, you start in Genesis, that's the beginning, and it it takes you through the life of, of, of Joseph and the children of Israel going down into Egypt. Exodus through Deuteronomy, the children of Israel come out of Egypt. They wander through the wilderness for 40 years, and they arrive to the edge of the promised land. And then you get to Joshua, and they enter the promised land. In Judges and Ruth are some accounts of what takes place when they're in the land. First Samuel through Second Chronicles is the time of the kings. Um, and then as they go into captivity, both the Assyrian and the Babylonian captivities. And then we have Ezra and Nehemiah, who chronicle the history of coming out of the Babylonian captivity. And then Esther, which is kind of this quasi-post-captivity book. And uh, then there's more division after that chronologically. So that all kind of makes good sense from Genesis through Esther. But then you have what some people call the poetry books, the wisdom books, maybe the inspirational books. Um, I don't know, but those are Job through Song of Solomon. And they don't continue the history, but they do kind of mark this division between the historical books and the prophets. And then we have the prophets, Isaiah through Malachi. And so when you get to the prophetical books where we're at, it's important to understand when they prophesied and who they were prophesying to. And it's important to figure all that out to really understand what they're saying. um, Because when you get to the prophets... They prophesied during those historical books, right? I know for some of you this is refresher, but for some you may not know these things. And so, like for example, when you read through uh, Kings, uh, Chronicles, Kings, uh, Nehemiah, Ezra, those prophets all fit in there. And so it's, it's interesting to see how all that flows. Um, remember when we read the prophets, the kingdom of Israel had split in two after the death of Solomon and Some of the prophets primarily spoke to the house of Israel. Some primarily to the house of Judah, though they both mention both houses often. Um, Some prophesied before 
and, and after the captivities. And so you have some that prophesied saying, hey, the Assyrian captivity is coming. Some who said, hey, the Babylonian captivity is coming. And the, the Assyrian captivity to the house of Israel, the Babylonian captivity to the house of Judah. And, and so uh, they, they kind of focus in on those things. For example, we find Hosea and Amos primarily speaking to the house of Israel before they were taken captive. Um, and, and then uh, Lamentations is as uh, the house of Judah is going into Babylonian captivity. That's why all the weeping, all the, all the lamenting, uh, they, they, they've been taken over. They're going into captivity. And, and then Daniel and Ezekiel, they actually were prophesying during the captivity. Remember, Daniel's up there in Babylon. And so um, after that, you have the, the, the last three prophets of the Old Testament, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, are all what we call post-captivity books. And so it's important to understand this as, as we go. It'll make more sense. So when studying the prophets, it's very beneficial to know how they fit chronologically in the earlier historical books, namely 1 Kings through Nehemiah, as I mentioned. If you read your Bible through every year, and I know at least five of you do, <laughs> I just threw out that number in there then I would recommend every other year or so, if, if you don't do it every year, but try going through chron- chronologically. Get yourself a good chronological Bible reading schedule, and uh, it will help you grasp what I'm trying to highlight here. So in Haggai, let's begin in chapter 1, verse 1. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, in the first day of the month, came the word of the Lord by Haggai, the prophet, Unto Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest. Now, many of the prophets will show us. How about now? All right, so many of the. uh, Does that thing still record when I switch out like this? All right, so many of the prophets, they actually show us when they prophesied in the first few verses of that book. And so what we see here in Haggai is that it was in the second year of Darius the king that the word of the Lord came through Haggai to Zerubbabel, uh, the governor of Judah, and Joshua, the high priest. And so as we look at these facts, brother, can you come and put a battery in this thing? Because my voice is going to be all over the place if we don't get this fixed. And I normally wouldn't do this. But because it's my Collinsworth, I want you all to look at him and... Three men saved at the jail this week. Amen. God bless you, Mike. Hey, come, come this way with me. There you go. So anyway, when we have these facts, we can ascertain when Haggai prophesied. But first understand that Joshua here is not the same Joshua that we read about over in uh, the days of Moses and then crossing over the Jordan River. So we see this is addressed to Judah. When Israel was taken captive by the Assyrians, they were almost entirely sown among the nations. They were dispersed. They lost their kingdom identity, and it never returned. And so after the Assyrian captivity, you won't find a prophet speaking to the house of Israel directly because they have been so scattered. Um, God did, however, bring the house of Judah back from captivity, from Babylon, because he had promised that a Messiah would come 
through Judah. Amen. And so God had to retain their identity. Come on, brother. What do we pay you for? Um, wow, that's the fastest he ever ran. Woo. We're going to get a dose of the Spirit this morning. Amen. You better slow down, Hoss. I don't trust you running. Amen. That's incredible. What's your heart rate right now? <laughs> amen and amen. All right, let's see if that works. Um, it really makes for a better recording and a better you hearing me. All right, am I on? Mike, am I on? All right. Good, I like that much better. And so anyway, um, so God brought them back from Babylon because he had promised the Messiah would come through Judah. Therefore, God had to retain their identity in order to fulfill some prophecies that he still had in mind. in the covenant that he made with Abraham and David. And as he would fulfill that Abrahamic and that Davidic covenant, he would establish the new covenant, the Bible says, with both the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And in fulfilling those two covenants, um, we we have Jesus coming through the tribe of Judah. And so they had to be retained. And and this is not to say that that the house of Israel being dispersed, that God somehow has lost sight of all that, God knows what he's doing. He, he, he knows his promises, and, and he kept his promises. And so um, he, he knows what's going on, and we don't have to worry about that. He never lost sight of his promises and of his covenants that he had for Israel. And we see that the prophecy was during the reign of Darius. Some people say Darius. I'm going to say Darius because that's how the VeggieTales say it. This is Darius, king of Persia, as he's called by Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, Jeremiah had come on the scene and he had prophesied of the 70-year captivity to come to Babylon. And that was ended by Cyrus the Persian when the Persians conquered the Babylonians and Darius was one of Cyrus's successors. You can get some debate on how he fell into that in secular history, but he was definitely one of his successors. And we're told from verse 1 that Zerubbabel was the son of Shealtiel. And that's the same man we read about in Ezra. And we are told that Zerubbabel was the governor of Judah. Now, just an interesting side note here. Um, Zerubbabel was of the lineage of David. And so they go into captivity, and while they're there, they apparently kept some kind of semblance of the kingly line. And so Zerubbabel here, he's he's the governor, but they never did return to a king. Even now, and, and that's what Hosea prophesied. But, but anyway, um, in fact, it got worse. Judah re, uh, remained under Gentile dominance, well, through now, really. I mean, Christ showed up on the scene and, and that kind of thing, but they were still under the Romans. And what's interesting is, you ever, you ever just pause for a minute, and, and I'm just getting off track here, but that Jesus never came in and tried to reform their political climate. I find that kind of interesting because a lot of churches today, man, that, that's their emphasis. And, uh, and, I, and I love politics, you know, don't get me wrong. But listen, we're not going to go out there and pick at the streets on whether we're Republican or Democrat because God didn't call us to do that. God called us to reach sinners for Christ. And so Jesus shows up, and he doesn't bring them out from Gentile dominance. That's what they wanted. But anyway, I don't know why I got off on that. But the only exception from after the Babylonian captivity through the times of Christ, where there may have been an exception to that, was the period of the Maccabees. Um, But even the Maccabees, there wasn't a king. It was more of a priestly line that was still governing. It it wasn't a a kingly line. 
And, uh, and when you read the genealogies in Matthew and Luke, and man, did I get stuck there, you'll find that both Joseph and Mary were descendants of Zerubbabel. And therefore, ultimately, of David. But instead of there being royalty, Joseph was a carpenter. And Mary wasn't living in extravagance. At least the Bible doesn't say she was. I mean, she's engaged to this carpenter from Nazareth. But anyway, um, we have every reason to believe that they were poor. Because when Jesus was born, after the days of her purification, when they came to present Jesus to the Lord. (laughs) I love that statement. They were presenting Jesus to the Lord. Anyway, and so they offered a pair of turtle doves, which was the provision God had made under the law if you couldn't bring a lamb because you didn't have the money. And so we have every reason to believe they were poor. Um, But they were very special in the eyes of the Lord. Amen. Um, And they hadn't been given the gifts of the wise men. I don't know how much gold they, they brought, but, you know, I could use some gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Amen. Amen. Um, I'll put it in the building fund, Lord. Um, All right. (laughs) Anyway, end of the side note. When we piece all these facts together from verse 1, we learn conclusively through Scripture that Haggai uh, Haggai prophesied after the Babylonian captivity. And so as I already mentioned, this is a post-captivity book. We are told in verse 1 that Haggai began delivering this word of the Lord in the sixth month of the second year of the reign of Darius. And in chapter 2, the word of the Lord came to Haggai on the 21st day of the seventh month. And I highlight this only to point out that Zechariah is contemporary with Haggai. Zechariah, the Bible says that he received the word of the Lord on the eighth month of the second year of Darius. So they're right there together. And so as you read those books back to back, you're getting the same picture Um, And just keep that in mind that Haggai is a post-captivity book because as we go through Haggai, it's going to help us really see and picture what's taking place, why this prophecy existed. Um, Now, if we're really going to understand the emphasis of Haggai, then we need to understand the events that led up to God calling Haggai, right? Sister, are you cold? Whew. Lord have mercy. Amen. Um, so what I would like for you to do this morning, let's, let's just kind of set the table for this study. Go to 2 Chronicles chapter 36. 2 Chronicles chapter 36. We'll look at some passages in the first four chapters of Ezra in just a moment as we introduce Haggai. Now, before what we are about to read, God had warned the house of Israel to repent, but they refused. And as a result, he had brought judgment to the house of Israel by allowing the Syrians from the north to come in and take them captivity, scattered them among the nations. The Bible says that Judah saw what took place to the house of Israel. Well, it makes sense. They're just right to the north. And, and they saw this. They, they saw how God was bringing judgment to the house of Israel. And, and God was warning Judah, you need to repent as well. God eventually raised up a prophet named Jeremiah to warn Judah one last time that if they didn't repent, they would be taken captive as well. And... Really, his message was more of this, 
It's too late for you. You're going into captivity. That's pretty much what Jeremiah's message was. And so it, it, it had got to the point where it was too late for Judah. And, and I know we're going to read it from here in just a minute, but bear with me. Jeremiah 3, verses 6 through 11 say, The Lord said also unto me in the days of Josiah the king, Hast thou seen that which backsliding Israel hath done? She has gone up upon every high mountain and under every green tree, and there hath played the harlot. And I said, after she had done all these things, Turn thou unto me, but she returned not. And listen to this. And her treacherous sister Judah saw it. And I saw when all for the cause whereby backsliding Israel committed adultery, I had put her away and given her a bill of divorcement. Yet her treacherous sister Judah feared not, but went and played the harlot also. And it came to pass through the lightness of her whoredom that she defiled the land and committed adultery with stones and with stocks. And yet for all this... Her treacherous sister Judah hath not turned unto me with her whole heart, but faintly saith the Lord. And the Lord said unto me, The backsliding Israel hath justified herself more than treacherous Judah. Can I tell you this morning, it's never a bad idea to learn from the mistakes of others. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Well, you shouldn't judge. Well, who's judging? Dang. Uh, I'm just learning because you're, you know, you're a moron, and I don't want to be a moron. And, and so I'm just... What, what would Brother DeGarmo say if he's here? You're an idiot, and I don't want to be an idiot. And, and so, uh, anyway, that cracked me up last lesson. He, he kept saying, <clears throat> and so anyway, it's not a bad idea to learn from the mistakes of others. I remember looking at my older sister going, yeah, I don't want that kind of wrath. And sure enough, it kept me off the bottle. Amen. It kept me off some things. And, and um, you know, Dad was an intimidating figure back then, and still kind of is today, even at 75, and uh, I, I might could push him off the porch. I don't know, but um, but I want to tell you this morning, it's okay to let your children know and your grandchildren know, this is where I failed, and I don't want that to happen to you. And we don't have to go into detail. We don't have to brag about our sinfulness, but we can at least say, look, um, I know what I'm talking about. I've been there, Right? And I mentioned this, I think, recently in a Sunday morning message that, or maybe Sunday night, I can't remember. But what our kids see in us today is not who we used to be. And they need to just understand that, you know what, I was heading straight to hell, and I was wicked. And anyway, so we need to be able to communicate those things and and let our kids know, look, I don't want the same for you. Well, Judah saw the wickedness of her sister Israel. And they saw the judgment God brought upon them as a result, but they refused to take heed. And because they should have learned from the example of what God brought upon Israel, um, God said there at the end of that passage I read, this is what he was saying, Judah, you're more guilty than Israel because you saw you saw the warning and you did nothing about it. Now let's read 2 Chronicles Chapter 36, we're going to read a lot today if, if, if the time allows it. Verses 14 through 21. Moreover, all the chief of the priest, where am I at? All the chief of the priests and the people transgressed very much after all the abominations of the heathen and polluted the house of the Lord, which he had hallowed in Jerusalem. And the Lord God of their fathers sent to them by his messengers, rising up betimes and sending, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. 
But they mocked the messengers of God and despised his words and misused his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people till there was no remedy. Therefore he brought upon them the king of the Chaldees who slew their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion upon the young man or maiden, old man or him that stooped for age. Uh, He gave them all into his hand. And all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and all the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king, and of the princes, and and all these he brought to Babylon. And they burnt the house of God, and break down the wall of Jerusalem, and burnt all the places thereof with fire, and destroyed all the goodly vessels thereof. And them that had escaped from the sword carried he away to Babylon, where they were servants to him and his sons until the reign of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed her Sabbaths. For as long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath to fulfill threescore and ten years. And we find that even though God was warning them, Judah still polluted the temple. The, the temple had been dedicated to God for His honor, for His glory. Kind of sounds like our temple or the temple of the Holy Ghost, and they polluted God's house. They polluted the temple. God showed them compassion by sending them men of God, prophets, to sound the warning, but they mocked and despised and misused God's prophets until the Bible says there was no remedy. And God was left with no other option than to exercise His wrath upon them. And so God allows the Babylonians to enter in. And and by the way, if you'll study all this out, they had already kind of moved into where the house of Israel once inhabited. They had already kind of driven the Assyrians from there. So they were kind of on the doorstep when some of these warnings were happening already. And he allowed the Chaldeans to come into Judah and, and violently overtake them. They showed no mercy. They did not care if you were using a walker. They did not care if you were nursing a baby. And so they came in, and with great force and cruelty, they began to destroy Judah. And in the process, they looted the temple, and they burnt the house of God. And that's one thing we really need to get from this as we start thinking about Haggai. And so they burnt the house of God, and those who survived the invasion were taken captive And God fulfilled his word by the mouth of Jeremiah. After 70 years, the land lay desolate so that the land could enjoy the sabbatical rest, which was due her every seven years. This ought to sound familiar from our Sunday night series we recently did through parts of Daniel. And the house of God also lay in ruins in the midst of a destroyed city. So kind of picture that. If you just kind of even picture Liberty Baptist Tabernacle and the enemy comes in, And this house is in ruins and everything else around it. Now let's read chapter 1 of the book uh, of Ezra. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it also in writing. So for 70 years, the house of Judah was in captivity in Babylon, as God prophesied. 
And when the time was fulfilled, after the land had her rest that God intended it for it to have, um, God allowed the Persians to come in and conquer the Babylonians. God had earlier foretold that Isaiah, uh, excuse me, through Isaiah, that Cyrus would arrive by name some 150 years before Cyrus was ever born. Now, that's amazing, amen? Um, God knows you before you were even born. And so he said, look, there's a man by Cyrus. He's going to come, and and he's going to issue a decree, and he's going to release the house of Judah from captivity. He's going to tell them to go build Jerusalem and to build the house of God. And from this chapter, I I want us to get a sense here of their excitement. Just look with me again, beginning in verse 2. Thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord God of heaven hath given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he hath charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is there among you of all his people? His God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is the God which is in Jerusalem. And whosoever remaineth in any place where he sojourneth, let the men of his place help him with silver and with gold and with goods and with beasts, beside the freewill offering for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Then rose up the chief of the fathers of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites with all them whose spirit God had raised to go up to build the house of the Lord which is in Jerusalem. And all they that were about them strengthened their hands with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, with precious things, besides all that um, that was willingly offered. Also Cyrus the king brought forth the vessels of the house of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had brought forth out of Jerusalem, and had put them in the house of his gods. Even though, uh, even those did Cyrus king of Persia bring forth by the hand of Mithridath the treasurer, and numbered them unto uh, the, the prince of Judah, <laughs> even... And this is the number of them, 30 charges of gold, a 1,000 chargers of silver, 9 and 20 knives. <laughs> Luke would be happy, amen. Uh, 30 basins of gold, silver basins of a second sort, 410, and other vessels, 1,000. All the vessels of gold and of silver were 5,400. All these did uh, Sheshbazar bring up with them of the captivity that were brought up from Babylon unto Jerusalem. And so as I read that, I hope you can kind of get an idea that there's a lot of excitement beginning to stir with Judah. They're, they're coming out of captivity. That in and of itself would be exciting, amen. They're coming out of captivity, and here they have a decree from the king of Persia saying, go build Jerusalem, build the house. And by the way, here's all the stuff that Nebuchadnezzar took from you. That's pretty incredible. And so, but, but God said all that was going to happen. And so um, this excitement is building, and, and they have this royal decree. And in verse 5, God raises their spirits to go up and build the temple. In verse 6, their hands were strengthened with great provision. And in the following verses, Cyrus, like I said, Cyrus gives back everything that was taken out. Now look at chapter 2, verses 64 through 70. The whole congregation together was 40 and 2,303 score, beside their servants and their maids, of whom there were 7,330 and seven. And there were among them 200 singing men and singing women. How about that choir, Ken? Amen. Um, their horses were 730 and six, their mules 240 and five, their camels 430 and five, their asses 6,720. 
And some of the chief of the fathers, when they came to the house of the Lord, which is at Jerusalem, offered freely for the house of God to set it up in his place. They gave after their ability unto the treasure of the work three score and one thousand drams of gold, five thousand pounds of silver, and uh, one hundred priests' garments. So the priests and the Levites and some of the people and the singers and the porters and the Nethanims dwelt in their cities and all Israel in their cities. Now, where am I? So I'm just reading this to highlight things are happening, right? You're you getting the, the, the vibe here. Um, the people are offering willingly, and they're offering after their ability, um, anyway, and so they're offering very willingly for the work of rebuilding the house of God. And, and it's all coming together. Finally, it's all starting to happen. And then it continues in chapter 3. Look there. And when the seventh month was come and the children of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered themselves together as one man to Jerusalem. Then stood up Jeshua the son of Josedach and his brethren, the priest, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and his brethren, and builded the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings thereon, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. And they set the altar upon his bases, for fear was upon them because of the people of those countries. And they offered burnt offerings there, thereon unto the Lord, even burnt offerings morning and evening. They kept also the Feast of Tabernacles, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the custom as the duty of every day required, and afterward offered the continual burnt offering, both of the new moons, and of all the set feasts of the Lord that were consecrated, and of every one that willingly offered a freewill offering unto the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month began they to offer burnt offerings unto the Lord, but the foundation of the temple was not yet laid. They gave money also unto the masons and to the carpenters and meat and drink and oil and unto them in Zidon and to them in Tyre to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea of Joppa according to the grant that they had of Cyrus king of Persia. Now in the second year of their coming unto the house of God at Jerusalem in the second month began Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel and Jeshua the son of Josedek and the remnant of their brethren the priests and the Levites and all they that were come out of the captivity unto Jerusalem and appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to set forward the work of the house of the Lord. Then stood Jeshua with his son and his, his sons and his brethren, uh, Cadmiel, his son, the sons of Judah, together to set forward the workmen in the house of God, the sons of Hinnadad with their sons and their brethren, the Levites. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, they set the priest in their apparel with trumpets. And the Levites, the son of Asaph, with cymbals. <laughs> Man, the independent Baptists be upset at that. Amen. Uh, uh, with, with cymbals to praise the Lord after the ordinance of David, king of Israel, and they sang together by course in praising and giving thanks unto the Lord because he is good for his mercy endureth forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and chief of the fathers who were ancient men that had seen the first house when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes wept with a loud voice and many shouted aloud for joy. So that the people could not discern the noise of shout of joy and the noise of weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud voice and the noise was heard afar off. This is such a great chapter. And I know you're thinking I could have saved that my Bible reading schedule for Sunday school. This chapter, I'm telling you, this is every pastor's dream. Chapter 3. Um, they are unified as one man. Ah, that's a good start. 
They're, they're unified as one. There's an altar which is being used. Um, and they're doing so in hopes that God will show himself strong on their behalf. And they're not just offering what was required by the law, but they're also bringing free will offerings. I mean, revival's breaking out. They're giving money to purchase supplies for the building project. They set forward for the work of the house of the Lord. The foundation is laid and they begin to praise God with instruments and to sing praise to the Lord. For the Lord is good, for His mercy endureth forever to all generations. And I will stand up and sing praise, hallelujah, for I know the Lord is good. And I mean to tell you, revivals here. The ancient men who saw the former house in all her glory as the foundation is laid of the new temple, man, they're just weeping aloud. They're crying over the fact that this is actually happening. They have come through the captivity. They saw the Babylonians come in. They saw the house of God lit on fire. And no doubt they saw the smoke rising as they were being led away into the uh, Chaldea. And, and, and as the house of the Lord is laid, man, revival starts to happen and, and people are just shouting for joy. And the old timers are just praising God. And those who didn't know what the old house was like, those who were born in captivity, man, they're just shouting. They're just praising God. And, and, and it's just a remarkable thing that's taking place here. And they're shouting for joy. But notice the last phrase of this chapter. And the noise was heard far off. This celebration of God's goodness and the noise of revival and their shouts was heard by all them in the land. And it's going to cause some problems. You understand that the world's okay with what we're doing in here this morning? Yeah. Amen. Yeah, whatever, a bunch of nut Baptists, you know. But we go knock a door or something, yeah. now i got problems with you. Amen. We, we started blasting the message with speakers on the top of the church. They might start having problems with us. Apparently, unless it's the Muslims, then they can do their chants and nobody, nobody cares. Yeah. But if Christians did it, you can bet there would be a problem. And so the, the land around them heard this revival break out. And no sooner than revival broke out did the attacks come. And you can just go ahead and mark it down. If you start to live your life for God and you begin to sell out for God, the attacks are going to come. Hey, other Christy, I just, just noticed that was you sitting there. Amen. I recognize the other two. And Anyway. We always called her other Christy. Huh? Sister Christy? I always called her other Christy. Whatever. She's other Christy. And so um, the, the attacks now are going to come. And so um, they heard this. Re revival's breaking. And, and listen, um, when, when you start to sell out for God, the enemy is going to show up. and Because and the, the enemy doesn't like the fact that you're growing closer to God. Uh, and they certainly don't want us to grow in numbers so that we can start to hold some kind of influence in the community. Well, there's Liberty Baptist come to tell us abortion's wrong. 
And so they, they, they hear this, and, and, and the enemy's going to come in because the enemy wants to take their joy away. And that's true individually or corporately. Look at chapter 4. Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the children of the captivity builded the temple unto the Lord God of Israel, then came Zerubbabel and to the chief of the fathers and said unto them, Let us build with you. For we seek your God as ye do, and we do sacrifice unto him since the days of Esar Haddon, king of Asher, which brought us up hither. But Zerubbabel and, and Jeshua... And the rest of the chief of the fathers of Israel said unto them, You have nothing to do with us to build an house unto our God. But we ourselves together will build unto the Lord God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, hath commanded us. Then the people of the land weakened the hands of the people of Judah and troubled them in building and hired counselors against them to frustrate their purpose. Kind of sounds like the ACLU, amen? They, they hired the ACLU to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So the adversaries of Judah show up, and they say this, we want to join in the building project. We worship God just like you do. But we know from 2 Kings chapter 17 and verse 33 that what had really happened in those days is they began to just mix all the religions together. Just like today. We're all heading in the same direction. All roads lead to glory. And, and, and that's what had happened. The Bible says in 2 Kings 17.33, they feared the Lord and served their own gods after the manner of the nations whom they carried away from thence. Well, Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the rest of the leaders... They know their intentions. They understand that they are adversaries, as is stated there in verse 1. And, and, and so they want to they do this sacrifice alongside. See, Zerubbabel, he understands, and, and the high priest knew, all they really want to do is they want to come in and infiltrate us so that as we build this house for God, we can also put in the, uh, the worship of the idols. And we just put it all on the same plane. And, and, and we can all just get along. I like what one guy said. You cannot have unity without division. Now, that's true. Think about it. How am I going to unify with everybody that believes you get to Christ a different way? Amen. There's got to be division somewhere in order for there to be unity somewhere. Now, it does sound goofy at first, but when you think what the angle in which this guy was saying it, uh, listen, if we're going to be unified, there's some things that we're going to have to disagree with out there. And so anyway, they, they, they come in, and, and they want to they work side by side, and they say, uh, nothing doing. You have nothing to do with us to build a house unto our God. Now, of course, that's going to anger the adversaries. <laughs> These people are in the land, and they begin to trouble them in their work. They began to frustrate their purposes. So I'm not going to read it, but in the following verses of what I've just read, they write an accusation, the, the adversaries, they write an accusation back to Ahasuerus, who was a king at the time. And they make the claim that if Jerusalem is built again, then the Jews will not pay tribute. And that they will rebel against Persia. Because they tell the king 
They say, look, if you'll go back and look in the historical records, what you'll find is when Israel was a mighty nation, that's what they did. They harassed kings. They took over land. And so the king checks the historical accounts, and it's written in their history that Jerusalem was a mighty city and that Israel at one time did conquer the land. By the way, that's what God told them to do. And, and, and they read in their history that that had happened and that they had ruled over all the countries beyond the river. And the Bible says that they inhabited all the way over to the great river of Euphrates. I think Baghdad's right there. You can kind of picture that. Now let's read verses 21 through 24. Give ye now commandment to cause these men to cease, and that this city be not... This is the king now. Um, and that this city be not builded until another commandment shall be given from me. Take heed now that ye fail not to do this. Why should damage grow to the hurt of the kings? Now, in the copy of King Artaxes' letter was read before Rehum and Shimshai, the scribe, and their companions. They went up in haste to Jerusalem under the Jews and made them to cease by force and power. Then cease the work of the house of God, which is at Jerusalem. So it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Take note of how this situation went from joy and progress to discouragement and a standstill. Now, I tried to find out how, much, how many years it was from when Artaxerxes said stop and when it was the second year of Darius, and I just didn't have time to dig any deeper. I don't know if the answer is out there. But we know this, that it was a period of years. Because Artaxerxes gives that command for them to stop building, and they didn't resume until the second year of Darius. And so some time had gone by here that they had stopped uh, building. But I would ask this, why didn't they write a letter back to Ahasuerus and say, hold up just a minute, we have the royal decree from Cyrus. They didn't even put up a fight. Everybody with me? Because this is where it's going to get real. They didn't even put up an argument. Why didn't they fight back? It's as if they were all too willing to say, good, we can be done with the building project. And that's exactly what we're going to read in Haggai in the next lesson. How quickly do we, we resign ourselves when the going gets tough? Well, I tried to serve God, but He didn't bless me the way I thought He should. And we just give up. We give up when things don't go exactly our way. And I want you to understand today that enemies are going to come against you and enemies are going to come against us in some form or fashion. And you can better believe if God ever leads us to build a new facility for His honor and glory, it will come with attacks. I could give you stories of men who have gone through that. And here's what they have told me. I don't know what's going to happen, but just be prepared. Something's going to happen. And so we just, opposition comes, we just give up. And I wonder, are we just going to give up? So picture the temple being rebuilt, not rebuilt as incomplete, but it's in the process of being rebuilt. You can see the foundation laid. 
And, and if you can picture that in your mind, then all of a sudden the work stops, and they're standing in Jerusalem, this unfinished house of God, and it stayed like that for years. And the people are content to just let it stay that way. They haven't resisted. They haven't used their political means. And I think sometimes we do the same thing. We can remember back when we used to live for God. We can remember when things were happening, when we were serving in the church. And we can remember all these good things, but somewhere along the line, when we were faced with some kind of opposition, we just began to settle for mediocre Christianity. And we just got content in Zion. And as we'll see in Haggai, we became inward focused on what our own desires are, and and, and we become the most important thing instead of God being the most important thing. And we've got to be careful. So how is God going to handle this? Here's all this excitement. They come out of captivity. They've got the royal decree, man. They're building things. They're going right. There was revival there in chapter 4 or whatever it was, 3. Chapter 3. And, and, and revival is broken out, and, and the enemy hears it, and the enemy says, nah, pff, uh, we got to put a stop to that. And so they, they bring in the ACLU, amen, and, and, and they come in, and they start to put a stop to all this, and, and they just go, okay. How's God going to handle this? How is God going to stir the people to get back to building the temple? How is he going to get the people to focus on the right priorities? Enter God's man, Haggai. Let me see if I can find it again real quick, and let's read verses 1 and 2. I should have told you to keep your finger there. Listen to this now. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month and the first day of the month, came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet unto Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, This people say the time is not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. They just gave up. Enemies too strong. God is going to raise up two men, Haggai, and Zechariah. And in the rest of Ezra chapter 5, they do send word back to the king of Persia after God raises up Haggai. And they send word back to the king who's now Darius. And they make search of the rolls to see whether or not Cyrus ever issued that decree and in building the house of the Lord, and we know that he did. And so that's our introduction to Haggai. That's why this prophecy exists. Because when the going got tough, they just gave up. And let me leave you with this. Don't get disheartened when the enemy seeks to hinder us. It will happen. But understand this. It takes battles to experience victories. 
Keep our eyes, keep your eyes and our eyes on God. Lord, thank you for the lesson this morning. Thank you for your word. God, I pray you'd help us to not get discouraged in the fight. We know enemies will come. Enemies from within, enemies from without. And I pray we would just stay focused upon you. For Jesus' sake, amen. Thank you. See you in a little bit.